Lord, what we are not, would you make us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? What we know not, Lord, would you teach us? We need to be fashioned and shaped by you through your word to be conformed, Lord, to um, that that picture of perfect holiness, which is Jesus Christ. And Lord, we just ask that today that our hearts would be humble before you, that you would have your way with us, that you would bring clarity because of uh, your word being proclaimed. But Lord, you would also bring conviction, correction, and direction, and guidance. And Lord, as I am your messenger today, Lord, that you would work through the preaching of your word, and simply that I would be the mouthpiece for what you desire to say. We ask now in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I was uh, fortunate enough to grow up in a Christian home. My father worked for British Airways, and um, when I was born, um, I had two siblings, an older brother, five years older, oldest sister, she was three years older, and uh, when I came into the world, we were uh, living in Tel Aviv, Israel, and uh, my father was airport manager for British Airways there in, in Tel Aviv, and we were there for five years, and then we moved to Germany, Frankfurt area, and I was there for about three years, and I moved to England till I was about 16, and I just remember all during my childhood years that we were involved in church on Sundays. I remember in particular in Israel going to church in the morning and the afternoon going to a farm which was kind of like a, I think it was a Southern Baptist missions outpost um, there in, in Israel um, and, uh, and then doing something in the evening. When we were in Germany, we went to one church Sunday morning, we went to a different church in the afternoon and we went to another church in the evening. And it wasn't that we were jumping from church to church, it's just that they were in different locations. One was on the, on the base um, of, the, of the army there and my parents had interacted with a lot of GIs and, and was encouraging them in ministry. And, and I just remember the, the, the word of God being present in the life of our family just growing up. And I am privileged to have had that. Not everyone in this room grew up in a home where the word of God was, was taught, where it was, uh, where it was nurtured, where parents would actually gather together with their family and pray, um, not just on special occasions, but even just casually throughout the week. Um, so church was a, a normal thing for me, and going to Sunday school was a normal thing, although I can't remember too much about it. I was kind of young then. Um, and you do forget quite a, quite a bit, but I just remember learning the stories and being under the influence of the word. And uh, having said all that, I did not come to know Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior until I was 16 years old. There was a season in my life where I, I just rebelled against what was being taught, and yet God in his wisdom and his kindness drew me back to himself. Now I say all that to say that I, at one point, was a child. And I think uh, if you have grown up in the church, you remember some of that childhood experience. You remember the places, maybe the VBSs or the special things you did um, during that time. And as I remember back, there are two songs uh, that came to my mind that I remember singing as a, a young boy. Um, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. 
And I think you all know the refrain, right? Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. So as a, as a child, I was reminded, even through song, that Jesus loves me. And then there's another one. In today's, I'm going to say, politically correct world, this one may not be appreciated so much, but is this, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight, Jesus loves the little children of the world, and of course that song is to say, Jesus loves children, he loves all the children, and friends, it's true, Jesus does love the children of the world. Now, as we come to our text today, the emphasis on this passage, or in this passage, is on Jesus and his relationship with children. And we see clearly that children are important to Jesus, that his delight and affection is for children, as well as the fact that he is displeased with those who hinder the children from coming to him. And so, as we begin today, I want to kind of present to you the, uh, the, the, the theme or the proposition or the, 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 the central truth that I, I think is driving this text. In this text, we see a corrective call. And so, in order for there to be a corrective call, there, there's a problem, and it needs to be corrected. So, a corrective call to view ministry to children as Jesus did. And we could say, as Jesus does. We could say that, because it, it's ongoing. It continues even today. Now let's just think through the structure of our passage. It's a short section of scripture. It's a short little story that he gives us here. And it is actually what we would call narrative. And with narrative, with a story, you typically have a, a plot line. The beginning and the end of the story are kind of like this is the, the normal circumstances. And what you have in the middle is this crisis. So you have a setting in verse 13, first part of it. You have a crisis in 13b through 15. And you have this new setting in verse 16. And what we see in the heart, in this crisis section um, of the story, um, is, is that something happens to challenge the norm. And it evokes a response from Jesus. But it's important for us to actually think through the norm that is going on with Jesus. And so we want to begin with that because this is who Jesus is. This is how he loves. This is whom he welcomes into the kingdom, the text tells us. So let's begin by, by thinking through, first of all, the people that are bringing, they're bringing children to Jesus. That's what verse 13 tells us. They're bringing children to him that he might touch them. And so we get from looking at this text an understanding of two things about Jesus' attitude toward children. First of all, Jesus loves children. I've said it already, but he loves children, and here's the application point, so should we. I mean, he's, he's an example for us. He's a model for us. How he interacts with children should paint a picture for us. Now, this, if you remember, is a gospel that is written for the benefit of those who are in Rome. And the people in Rome then are living in this Hellenistic culture, obviously the, the Roman culture. And yes, there's still a presence and uh, uh, the, the aspect of, of, of Jewish thinking, contemporary Jewish thinking, as well as, I want to say, 
historic Hebrew culture. And we want to think through that as it relates to an understanding of what this all means to the people who are reading this and what it meant to those who are around Jesus at the point in time when this happened. And I want us to think about different cultures. I want to think, first of all, about this Hellenistic or this Roman culture. Because it's important for us to understand that a Roman uh, father had ultimate authority or had ultimate uh, responsibility authority over the rights of his children. Listen to a letter from a man named Hilarion to his wife, um, his expectant wife, Alice, and it's dated 17th of June, 1 BC. And he instructs her, instructs her with the following words. If it is a male child, let it live. If it is female, cast it out. Now, that might shock us a little bit, but that was the norm of that culture. If children were worth anything, certainly they were worth more if it was a male child. So sometimes children were loved, sometimes children were exploited, sometimes when they say cast it out in the, in the Roman context, sometimes what they would do is they would actually not kill the child, but they would cast it out, and those children would be taken either to be slaves or raised to be prostitutes or raised for the, the, the gladiator games. However it was, those children then were free to be taken. Now, that's horrifying to us, isn't it? I mean, this is, this is what you do with children. I don't want it. Now, go take it. And not only that, exploit it. Again, that Roman father had the freedom to end his son's life if he wanted to. Now, I understand, dads, there are times when you feel that way. But the difference is the Roman law would stand behind that father in saying it was a just act. Secondly, there's the contemporary Jewish culture of that day. And if you remember in the history of of this period when it was announced that this one was coming who would be the king of the Jews, remember what Herod did? He went and sent his men to the regions of Bethlehem and killed all the male children two years and younger. I mean, this, this kind of attitude about, I'm just, gonna, I'm just gonna kill all of these children. Again, you have to understand the whole Herod family and how they function, but this was recent history. And this is how children were viewed. We're just going to slaughter them to get them out of the way, to, to get rid of this king. But in Hebrew culture, if you go back to the Old Testament, what we find is that children are a blessing. They're a gift. Turn to Psalm 128. You know this passage. Psalm 128, verses 3 through 6. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children would be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace upon, uh, be upon Israel. Having children in, in the Hebrew context was a blessing. You can go back a psalm. You, you read the same thing. Children are a heritage, a gift from the Lord. And so you have these cultures that are competing here, but what we have Jesus doing in our text is, is elevating the importance and the significance of children. And he shows his loving heart 
toward those children. He wants the children to come to him. He takes them up in his arms and he touches them, literally blesses them. This is the heart of Jesus. He loves children. The question for us now is, is this the heart of our culture? Is this the heart of of where people are living today here in the United States of America? I would say, first of all, we're living in a culture that, that murders children. And you say, well, how could you say that? Well, it's a culture that cares more for free love and free living than about the hundreds of thousands of children that are murdered each year through abortion. They are children. They are children who are alive. They are created in the image of God. But man has salved his conscience to the point that he doesn't care about that. He just wants to live freely in his sin. Other things are more important than having this child. We're also living in a culture that endures children rather than giving them care and the attention that they deserve. A man proposes to his would-be bride by saying, Honey, I want you to be the mother who hires the nanny of my children. I mean, I know it's facetious, but you get the point. Yeah, let's just get someone to watch the kids. We're not going to raise them. Someone else is going to raise them. A woman says to a boyfriend who is speaking about her, uh, or to her about marriage and having a family, and she says, I don't want to settle down and make a family. I want to make a difference. As if having a family isn't making a difference. I just say this here, now. You have children. That responsibility of raising children makes a difference. But this is the thinking that we have to I guess, um, endure ourselves or think through or, or face. In many ways, there's an underlying attitude in our culture that does not love or value children, but Jesus loves children and so should we. But there's a third problem. I think we're in a culture that, if it, if it, yes, it's murdering and yes, it's enduring, but I think it's also a culture that also, on the other side of the coin, worships children. And many times, the the children are the idols of the parents. Whatever that child wants, that child gets. I remember a number of years ago, my wife might remember this. We were living in the Michigan area. We went to the Detroit Zoo, and they have a train that goes around the zoo. And I remember standing, waiting for the train to come, and there was a there was a, a family behind us, and there was this one child, and this child was throwing this big tantrum, I want this, I want that, I want this, I want that, and we kind of both looked at each other, and we were like, I know what that child wants, but I know what that child needs. <laughs> and that parent wasn't willing to adjust what that child wants to what that child needs. We're, we're living in a culture that idolizes children. We give them what they want when they want it, we also seek to live our lives vicariously through them. All you, you know, all you soccer dads or, you know, basketball coaches, whatever. And there's nothing wrong with those things. Remember, it's your child playing. It's not you. And you know you're kind of there when the child's shooting the shot and you're kind of like doing, doing this number at the same time, right? You're re-envisioning things that you did when you were a child. But this is a real challenge for us because our culture then promotes idolizing the child and we can get caught up with that too. What we have here is Jesus 
screaming at us, love children, but there's a, there's a problem even in, in how we interact with children. First of all, do we love them? Secondly, I want you to notice that Jesus evangelizes children. You're like, well, wait a second, how is that? I mean, is Jesus preaching the gospel to these children? And I think if we think through what he's saying here, we find the gospel being part of what is going on here. The unnamed people who are bringing the children to Jesus have him touch them. I just want to remind you in Mark's gospel, in chapter 2, four friends bring a paralytic to Jesus. In chapter 8, verse 22, they, some people, bring a blind man to have him that would be Jesus, touch him in order for him to be healed. And so far in Mark's gospel, we have crowds who've been coming to Jesus, bringing their friends and loved ones to be healed. Here, however, they are not bringing children to be healed, but they're bringing children to be touched or prayed for or blessed over. And we can bring children to Jesus by a number of, or a number of ways. Number one, giving uh, them simply the gospel uh, in, a, in a simple way, in a plain way, telling them about Christ. It doesn't have to be incredibly complex, but we present the gospel in, its, in a simple, clear fashion. We teach that to our children. We read God's word to them and with them. We disciple them with the truth of God's word. So we're not just saying, here's the gospel, that's enough. We're reading God's word. We're, we're interacting with them about God's word. Um, we're, we're teaching them on the way. That's what it says in the book of Deuteronomy. We teach on the way. You, you see life happening, and you bring God's word to bear in that context, and you interact over it. You're teaching principles of God's word when issues confront them, and so things like you know, being sensitive to that person's sinfulness or, or how to be kind or how to be selfless or forgiving or trusting in a sovereign God. These are things that life is full of, and they're, they're, they're big people issues, but as well, they are children issues. And so we walk with them, we teach them. It means praying with them. It means encouraging them. It means blessing them. It means being examples for them. And so the question for us now is, who is shaping our children? Is it the ungodly or is it the godly? Is it you with God's word or have you outsourced it to someone else? Now, I know, in many situations, there's going to be a combination. You know, if your kids are going to a public school, you're probably sitting under a nice teacher but has a different frame of mind who's going to be teaching their class from a different worldview. But remember, you're the parent. But that teacher is having an influence. So if that's the case, you need to be interacting with that teacher to know what's being said and, and what's being communicated and how you can shape your child in that context. So remember this. Before there was a Sunday school, there were parents. Right? Before, before there was a Christian school, there were parents. Before there was a youth group, there were parents. None of those things take away the responsibility of parents being parents to those children. So as parents, God has placed on us, on our shoulders, the raising up of our children in the fear of the Lord. And it's not easy, is it? But it is our challenge. It is our, our responsibility. 
And we have to ask ourselves some further questions. Are our children's heroes men and women of character? Or are they men and women who are promoting things that are contrary to God? Now, I mean, there's a number of different kind of characteristics or, or, or people that our children could hold up as so being their heroes and the kind of people they put on their wall and that kind of stuff. But, you know, it could be an athlete. And the athlete might be a good athlete. It might be a really good example of hard work and determination as an athlete. But when they open their mouth, what comes out? In other words, there's still an influence there. And, and as parents, it's not saying, well, you know, stay away from that athlete or don't think about an athlete, but teaching them how to interact with what that athlete is saying. And that's true also for some kind of a pop artist because young people in particular have a connection with that. It might, this person might be the in thing at that particular moment in time, but you know, what are they doing now? You know, years ago, people loved Hannah Montana. Such a pure, innocent, sweet girl. Wait a few years. And then actors might be popular. But again, what, what is the message they're really preaching? And like I said, you may have some teachers in school. They're, they're, they're excellent at teaching the subject, but what is it that they're promoting? What is kind of going on in, in that interaction? And that can also happen at a Christian school. The, the bottom line here is this. School, the church, the youth group, the sports teams, all, they're all extensions of your ministry as parents to your children. God has placed that burden, that responsibility on your shoulders. And, and the, so the church comes along and says, we want to help you. We want to assist you. We want to come alongside you. None of these are ever supposed to be substitutes for your ministry to your children. So you don't say, ah, my kid's having a problem. I know, I'm going to send them to a Christian school. It's not going to do the job. It might be a help. But you can't just say, well, okay, they're in youth group. I don't have to worry about anything. No, no, no. You still have to be a parent. You still have to do your, uh, do your parenting before God for your children. That is where God has placed you. Now, remember what Jesus said a little later in his text. He says, to such belong the kingdom of God. That's an evangelistic statement. The kingdom of God belongs to children. This is the same message that Jesus comes preaching in the beginning of Mark's gospel. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Believe in the message of the gospel. The message of repentance. And, and so it's, it's helpful for us to understand that children have the capacity for the gospel. So we must be purposeful to evangelize them. Again, I, I have a personal problem in, in American Christianity, which also spills over into a Christian school context, where we can say, hey, child, take calculus, take AP calculus, but, oh, in Bible class, we've got to keep it simple. We've got to keep it you know, down here where they can grab it and they can hold on to it. These kids are taking calculus. They can handle a good dose of theology. But for some reason, we think, oh, no, they can't handle it. Oh, they can it's just how are we teaching it? How are we promoting it? How are we, how are we pressing it home? They have the capacity, and so we must be purposeful to evangelize 
children as we have the opportunity. So where does that take place? Well, it takes place in the home when we teach them the gospel, where we show them that Jesus can be trusted, when we, we, we show them that, that he is kind and so we want to be like him and that he is not a fairy tale in any way, shape, or form, but he is the very son of God. And as we're going through stories, as we're reading the gospel accounts with them, we're showing them Jesus. We're pointing back to him. Of course, that takes place in the context of a church, in Sunday school. I think for, for us, when we started Gateway, um, we, we knew there was going to be a need for children's ministry. We just didn't realize how quickly and how fast. And it was, it was a ministry where we're like, all right, we've got to give attention to this. And I just want to say to you, with all the children that we have, when you look at our demographics here, you know, probably what, but two-thirds, you know, big people, the rest of them kids, and they're running around us, and yet with all of us working together, we're able to consistently have a number of different classes for those kids and consistently have workers in there who are teaching these kids the truth of the gospel. And we're not putting that burden on one person's shoulders. We're sharing that responsibility. It's fabulous. You guys don't know how wonderful that is. And part of the reason why it's wonderful is because we need to be investing in the next generation as God gives us those children. Why? Because Jesus loves them, and so should we. And Jesus evangelizes them, and so should we. And the goal of children's ministry is that our children will know, apply, and proclaim the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because they can, and they should. And so we want, to, we want to encourage that. Now, so that's, that's the beginning here. They're bringing these children to Jesus. Now, notice what happens now. That's the norm. This is what was happening. This is kind of like the standard thing. Jesus is ministering to these, these children. And notice now the disciples are rebuking. It says, and the disciples, verse 13 at the end, rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was in indignant and said to them, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for such belongs, or to such belongs the kingdom of God. I just want to first of all say this, we're going to look at four aspects of this response. First of all, the rebuking, the rebuking. This is not the first time in Mark, uh, in his gospel, that he's used this word to describe what's going on. What he saw in, in Mark uh, uh, Eight in verse 32, what we saw there was Peter rebuking Christ. Right? Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to die. And Peter's like, that is not happening. And, G- and Peter rebukes Jesus, and of course, that's not a good thing. Um, and then Jesus turns around and rebukes Peter. And so we have this, this, this word rebuke. It means to, to scold sternly. It often describes heated words. In Mark chapter 10, which we'll, we'll look a little bit later in verse 48, we have the, the beggar Bartimaeus, and he's continuing to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He's just repeating this. He's repeating this as Jesus is walking by, and the crowd is sternly telling him to, don't let the kids know I said this, shut up. And they're saying it over and over and over again. And he is saying, Jesus, have mercy on me, over and over again. And they're basically rebuking him for what he's saying. And as we read this present text, the disciples rebuke the people. 
and the children. You can just imagine the kind of uh, interaction that's going on here. Now, and, and how this is written is there's, there's continual action. So this, this bringing children to Jesus, it's not like, it's just like, you know, here's, here's three couples, they bring the children. This has been going on for a long time during the day. It's written in a tense that says this has been consistent. So there's a line of people waiting to bring their children to sit on Jesus' lap and have him bless them. They're, they're viewing Jesus here as a rabbi. This is a practice that would take place in that Old Testament Jewish culture. Okay, So this is what's going on. And so you can imagine what has happened here. And, and the, the crowds are saying, but we have been waiting to see the rabbi all day long. And the disciples respond, he has had enough. It's been a long day. You need to leave. And the crowd responds, but we want our children to be blessed by him, please. And the disciples finally say, what part of no do you not understand? Please leave. This train has shut down. Now, obviously, they didn't say those specific words, right? Because they probably didn't know what a train was and that kind of stuff, right? But you understand, the, what I'm trying to stress here is the kind of tone and the kind of venom that's coming out of their mouths with this, this kind of rebuke. Now, isn't it interesting, in all three of these accounts of rebuke, those doing the rebuking are taking on what they believe to be their responsibility to speak for Christ, but in all the situations, they are mistaken. Yeah, that should cause us to pause and to think. They're not speaking for Christ. And this begs the question, of course, how are we like these disciples? They probably had good intentions. They were protecting their master who was busy at work all day long, but are they the ones that are supposed to be their master's keeper, or is he the one that says, all right, it's time to stop? Good intentions, maybe? And these were just children, by the way. They weren't the blind. They weren't the diseased. These are just children coming for a blessing. I mean, there's no real significance in that. There's no real change. I mean, I can see, you know, you know someone's demon-possessed. All right, we'll, we'll let the master deal with that one. But this is a child, for crying out loud. He just wants to be blessed. They're missing the significance of that blessing, of what it's all about. So we have this, this word rebuking. Now, what are some ways that we build walls so that children are not coming to Jesus? So we're thinking about our context in our home or in our church. Let's think through that. I've listed five here. Uh, neglect. I just think we just kind of just forget about them. There's a lack of love. There's a lack of humility. There's a, there's a lack of care for the things of God actually going towards children. We want our children to get attention. Not just for psychological and emotional reasons, but for spiritual reasons. They belong they are part of our church. When you see a child bouncing around, you know, running, maybe doing things that child shouldn't be doing, remember that child is part of this gathering. They belong. They're not insignificant. They're important. Secondly, annoyance. Now, sometimes children can be annoying, right? They're in church and they somehow manage to grab a hold of mom's keys and they start banging it and banging it and you're like, I'm trying to concentrate on the sermon and they're banging and banging and 
hey, listen, life happens. You know, just come with me to Bolivia and you find out what a distraction is. Come with me to Ukraine and the children are walking all around while the pastor's speaking. I mean, you know, we were in Ukraine and this last time this child was walking up and looking up at the screen and all this. I mean, culturally, we're just like, what in the world is going on here, right? But that's just, they're just kind of, they're okay with it. And I'm not saying that I'm okay with that, all right? What I'm, what, what I'm, what I'm saying is I'm not going to get freaked out. Over, I'm not going to panic. I'm not going to scream. We want to we maintain some, some order and some decency and teach our children some things. But listen, yeah, sometimes children can be annoying. But listen, let's be adults. You can, you can keep your focus. I just can't. I can't concentrate anymore. Yes, you can. I mean, life happens all the time when you've got to keep your concentration and things are happening. Let's just be honest. But somehow it's like, oh, you know, I can't. They're annoying. Hypocrisy. Your home life is different than your church life. Now, listen, that is true for us all. Home is the place where we let our hair down if we have any, all right? But, you know, it's, it's that place that, that we kind of, we're, we're far more comfortable sinning, and our children see that. But at the same time, I'm talking about this, this, this pure hypocrisy where you're putting on this front at church, and you're completely different at home. And you know, you get comfortable with your, ch- your children seeing that and watching that, and, it, and it's a hypocrisy that they see and they know. And there are times when you have to look your kids in the eye and say, you know what, dad was wrong. This example I've been giving you is a, is, a, is a wrong, sinful example, and I need to be authentic and real at church, and I need to be that way here at home. But these are ways we can build walls so that children don't come to Jesus or we're driving them away. Um, idolatry. That's when you're more concerned with your child's schooling than with their growth in Christ or their, their schooling or their sports. Or the question is, is it schooling sports or is it their salvation? Now, all, all those things have their place. Don't get me wrong. Or maybe it's idolatry that you have. I'm not going to be pursuing Christian things. I'm not going to be pursuing this church thing. I mean, I, yeah, I'm a believer, but I'm going to, ah, maybe I'll go to church today, but I think I'm going to stay home and I'm going to work on fill in the blank. And there is a result of that. Your children are watching this saying, well, I don't really want to go to church today. And mom's like, you're going to go to church today. Well, dad's not. You see the problem. And then words. Words that tear down, words that discourage, words that exasperate. These are all ways that we can be a hindrance. We can build walls so that our children don't see Jesus as as one that truly is a blessing to them. But how does Jesus respond to the disciples' rebuke? What does he think about what they're doing on his behalf? I'm using the word here, grieving. And there's a reason why I'm using that word. The word in the text is the word, but when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. Now, friends, this is a strong word. Um, It's a Greek word, it's actually two Greek words brought together that mean grieving much. So it's not just that he was grieving, he's grieving what? Much. This would be similar to his attitude that we'll see in a little bit when he comes into the temple and he sees all the money changers there. He is not a happy camper. Let's just put it that way. He is upset with his disciples. Now, think about this. 
The things that grieve us or make us indignant often reveal a lot about who we are as people. And certainly it tells us a lot about Christ. Why is he grieving? He'd spent a lot of time with the disciples. He loved them. He had taught them. He had trained them to be his followers. He had been patient with them. He had endured their sinful and selfish failings. But now he finds them turning the children away. And it's just too much. Their behavior has been unjust. They are defenseless. They're helpless. They're vulnerable. They're powerless. And so he speaks now. And he speaks two commands. One would have been sufficient. But notice what he says. Two commands that are kind of on both sides of the coin. He says, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. If you didn't hear it the first time, hear it the second time. Let these children come. Don't stop them. Welcome them. Don't drive them away. And this is a stark warning to us all. Why are they to let the children come? He says, because the kingdom of God belongs to children. Now, friends, as a church, we have to ask ourselves the question, how are we interacting with this? Are we hindering children? Are we doing what we can to welcome children? Practically, spiritually, in our homes, in our relationships. But we have this rebuking, this grieving, this commanding, but it ends up here with really the point of the text. Remember I told you this was a narrative? And you have these two norms, Jesus interacting with these children, but there was a crisis. The crisis is the disciples who are rebuking the children, and Jesus speaks to that, and now he's going to write the crisis, and here's what he says, and it's at this point that the focus of this passage becomes clear to us. He says, truly I say to you, in other words, pay attention, this is important, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So this is the focus of what Mark is saying to his audience. In one sense, this text isn't really about children at all. The children are the fodder, so to speak, to get to this truth. It is telling us that all of us who would receive the kingdom of God must receive the kingdom like a child. We must come in a childlike manner. And if we don't receive the kingdom this way, we will not enter it. So what does that look like? What is the characteristic of a child that we must possess in order to enter the kingdom. Now, from, from our cultural perspective, we're going to come up with, with characteristics that are things like, I'll put them up here, um, innocence, purity, gentleness. I mean, you walk into a Hallmark store, this is what children are, okay? They're innocent. They're pure, all right? They're gentle. But those are all false characters, children. Because if you have a child, you know your child is not innocent. Right? 
Come on, I mean, you with me? That child does what? That child sins. That child throws tantrum. That child, when it doesn't get what it wants, it lets you know. It is not pure. It's young, but it's not pure. It's not gentle. When it wants something across the the way in the nursery, it's going to find a way to beat the path to what it wants. And if another child has it, it's going to rip it from that child and feel justified that they have it. Why? This is all because we are born in sin. Sin reigns in us. Every child, when it comes out of the womb, already has a sinful nature. You don't have to teach your children to sin. That's just what they do. Now, our culture just kind of like steps back. It's like, really? No, I thought children were innocent. Now, I might say, there's a legal side where children are innocent. (laughs) But spiritually speaking, they're just as guilty as you and I because of their sin. So what what is it that's going on here? Well, I don't know if you heard, but Toys R Us is closing. And I know there are many parents that are just really, really saddened by that. When I was a parent, one of the places I just loved to go was Toys R Us, especially if I didn't have the kids with me, right? But if you have the kids with you, you know, it's like the talk beforehand, we're not buying anything in there, right? You can look, but you, and you can touch, but you're not taking anything out, you know? Of course, by the time you get to the register, what is the child doing? You know, and there's this big thing going on, and it's not happening at this register, it's happening at this register, and it's happening at this register. And then if you look back, you know, the whole place is all torn up because kids are playing with stuff, and, all right, this, this is very, very close to hell on earth, all right? <laughs> so when I, when I heard Toys R Us is closing, part of me was saddened because of the history of it, but part of it was like, hey, this is not a bad thing. <laughs> but one of the things you, you see at Toys R Us is this innocent child fully on display for all to see. So what is actually going on here? If it's not this innocence and this purity and this gentleness, what is Jesus getting at? He's saying that everyone who enters the kingdom of God must enter it like a child. And I'm going to give you some words that will help you with this. Helpless, powerless. They have no standing before Christ. The song that we sing many times in Rock of Ages, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. They are totally and completely dependent on Christ. Now you can imagine the children coming up to Jesus and, and, and raising their little hands to him and him picking them up and putting them on his lap. What a, what a wonderful and beautiful picture simply of, of this, this coming to Jesus in the gospel. They're not coming saying, look at all the things that I have done. Look at me, I'm special. No, they're just coming and just raising their hands to Jesus. And, and there's, this, there's this incredible dependence that is pictured here. 
So Jesus is giving those around him a picture of what it looks like to receive the kingdom of God. And Mark is reinforcing this truth to his audience of total dependence on Christ. That is what it means to believe the gospel of the kingdom. That is what repentance and belief in the gospel is. It's coming without anything and totally depending on Christ. It's coming to Christ with hands raised, saying, I can do nothing, only you can change me. It's coming to Christ by faith and believing fully in him. So how does this help us understand the gospel and understand the gospel call? And I've mentioned it a little bit, but just for clarity, let's think through this more specifically. We must stop thinking that we need to impress God. Now, let me just say this here. This message is still about children. But it's now about us. And we are the children that Jesus is speaking to. Because anyone who would enter the kingdom of God must come how? Like a child. And that's you, and that's me. And so if anyone now comes and seeks to enter into the kingdom of God and, come, and comes to God and says, this is, this is what I've done. This is, this is how I've behaved. Isn't this good enough? No. That has no bearing on the gospel. All our righteousness, Scripture says, is as filthy rags. All our goodness, all the things that we have done does not contribute one bit the gospel transaction or to your entrance into heaven. Secondly, we must not think that we have somehow to do some kind of work or good deeds first in order to be worthy of Christ and his gospel. This is a gospel given for you wholly because of Christ and his grace and his mercy. The good works are the result of that gospel that are now fruit that take place because of Christ. We must not think that we must do a little bit and Jesus will do the rest. Salvation is all of God. Yes, we respond. Yes, we say, pick me up. Yes, we say, touch me. But we're not contributing at all except for the response to it. So it's about depending on his sacrifice on the cross for our sins. It's about saying to Jesus, I'm helpless and I need your help. And friends, this is so important for us to see. And so what Jesus is doing is he's modeling that just in the, in the practical context of life and he's using that, that analogy then to say, let me teach you a truth. Truly I say to you, Anyone who wants to come and be a part of the kingdom of God must come as a little child. Now with that in mind, let's think now, if, if we are the children, if everyone are these children that are being thought about, what are some ways that we hinder people from coming to Christ? You see where I'm going with this? We talked about how do we hinder children, but now since we are the children, what is it that we do as God's people that hinder children from coming and hearing the gospel and embracing the kingdom. Um, I have 10 
So we'll move through them, but let's walk through them together. Number one, apathy. Apathy. Just not caring about those who are lost. Going on in life as if those lost people are just in that condition and somehow God is going to do what he's going to do. And and hear this, there's a tendency for us who embrace a a robust gospel, we say this is all of God, that that man doesn't contribute anything to say, well, if it's all of God, then why do I need to do anything? He's going to do it all anyway. Now, friends, that is to deny the direct commands of Scripture to go and preach the gospel to all nations. We go and we carry our responsibility, but in doing that, we recognize that it is God who actually accomplishes his purposes through our meager efforts. So we don't allow our theology to create an apathy. We allow our theology to drive us to responsibility and being faithful to that. Secondly, silence. Silence. Not sharing the gospel when we have opportunity. Now listen, friends. You and I can't preach the gospel to everyone. You say, yes, I can. Have at it, buddy. And God is not expecting you to do that. But he's given you a place to live. He's given you a job. He's given you a school to attend. He's given you a bus route. He's given you a BART to ride. He's given you all these different things where he creates scenarios and opportunities where gospel communication can take place. So really, one and two, apathy and silence can kind of go together if you're not thinking through and praying, saying, God, I want to be concerned about the loss, so now I don't want to be silent. I want to pray for opportunities to share the gospel during the course of my, my realm, that, my, say, my realm, that place where I live. When I was in Russia, I used this illustration. If you have a, 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 you know, one of the new phones, of course, that has apps on it, and some of you have those running apps where you can, you can map everywhere you've been running, and that kind of stuff. If, if your day and if your week were shown by a yellow or a green line, this is where you typically go. This is how you function. This is the map of your life. You could rightfully say, this then is the area of responsibility that God has given me to be a gospel witness. This is where you live. This is your area of moral proximity. You are responsible for what you're doing in that context. And what I'm saying here is we we move from apathy, we move from silence by praying, saying, God, I'm just praying for divine appointments and and you would make that clear so that I can speak and not be silent. uh, Third, uh, arrogance. Um, You know, the idea here is not uh, not being aloof in our attitude because I'm a Christian and that person isn't. It is true, the Bible says, the natural man or the unbeliever does not have the ability to understand the things of the Spirit of God because they're foolishness to him. That's that's not a statement of, well, then you can be arrogant. That's just a statement of reality. Don't expect them to understand the things of the Spirit of God. That doesn't mean, then, that you're better than them. You are blessed, but don't look down on others. And I think there can be a tendency to think that you're superior. Number four, bigotry whether it's racial or cultural or class or educational. And let's be honest that bigotry is, in all its forms, still present in the church. All right? And there may be some ways that, that you, um, 
either flesh that out or there's some residual, maybe from the way you were brought up or the way you think or attitudes you have toward a particular group. But some of it is blatant. Some of it is subtle. It can be blue-collar, white-collar. It can be rich, poor. It can be educated, not educated. It can be um, political in some way. It can be uh, racial in some way, okay? It It could be a variety of things. But that is one way that you can stop others from actually considering the gospel. Number five, traditionalism. Traditionalism. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't have that up there. We can be so concerned about getting our Christian religion right that it eclipses the gospel we're preaching. We, 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 um, we put priority on the, the might we say, the, 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 the traditional practices above caring for people. So, for example, in some church contexts, it can be things like having the right kind of music or the proper kind of clothing or the right kind of translation of the Bible, things like that, that are more traditional in nature. Um, You know, I was talking with a pastor this week who was talking with me about changing the model of how they do church. Um, They have a Wednesday night, they have a Sunday morning, they have a Sunday night, and uh, this guy's a working pastor and... um, and he's feeling guilty because he's considering changing the Sunday evening service. And I'd say, let me walk you through why we have services at the times that we do and all that kind of stuff and trying to give some perspective there. There's tradition. And sometimes our tradition can be far more a priority than actually reaching people. And it can get in the way. Next one, moralism. Moralism says, be like X, Y, Z person. So you go through the Bible and you see Nehemiah or you see Moses, you see David, and it's be like, be like, be like, be like. And you might even say we, we expect unbelievers to think and act and value the things that Christians think and act and value, but we can't expect them to do that because they don't understand the things of the Spirit of God. Yes, the law is written on their hearts, and we would expect that there's a, there's a basic understanding of, of what murder is and what stealing is and things like that, but there are some other things that, that maybe we believe that they're just not going to have any concept for. And so there's this morality, and sometimes the church has been focused far more on morality than the gospel, and the world hears it, and the, the world sees it, and that's what their understanding is. Uh, close to that would be legalism. Moralism was be like, legalism is do this. Um, conform, obey the rules. You know, so, you know, in, in, in my initial growing up church context, it was if you're a guy and you get saved, you know, you cut your hair short, doesn't touch your ears. And you, you remember those days, right? I mean, there's certain norms that you kind of fit into because this is culturally it. And, but scripture doesn't say anything like that. And so we make these assertions that end up being barriers to, uh, to the gospel going to those who would be uh, God's children. I would say now we're getting to some uh, more dangerous territory, worldliness, worldliness. Um, the idea is that, you know, okay, I'm a child of God and God's given me grace and so with that grace now I can live how I want. And um, sadly, there are many, many Christians today who are functioning that way. They, you can't actually distinguish an unbeliever from a believer by virtue of looking at their behavior because they're both behaving badly, but one says they're a Christian. Well, I'm covered by grace. See, worldliness does not help because it says, well, how am I any different than you? Why should I consider the gospel when your life is just like my life? It doesn't make any sense, and it, it, it confuses. Easy believism. 
That's basically when we say that the gospel is, is kind of whittled down to this kind of thing. All you have to do is say yes to Jesus. You know, just say yes. Well, I understand that saying yes is part of the gospel response, but, but there also needs to be this identification of the fact that there's a problem. It's the bad news. It's the sin news. It's the, it's the reality of your condition. And then, as a result of that bad news, you can present the good news. And so this ease of believism um, has been rampant, and there are many people who think that they're followers of Christ who are not because they've simply said yes, but they have no framework of understanding their condition before God. And um, there's a faulty gospel and a faulty uh, response. And uh, the last one, this certainly is not exhaustive, but I think politicism. Unfortunately, I think in today's world, much of the unbelieving world views Christianity through a political lens. And you're sharing the gospel, and this is one of the obstacles that's in the way. Now, there's just ways, guys, just to think through how can we, in a sense, be rebuking those who are wanting to come, rebuking those who might be even considering it. Now, let's, let's move then. This is Jesus. He's, 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 he's righted the ship, so to speak. He is, he's given this, um, this, uh, this careful answer that I have said here in the proposition um, being a, a corrective call to view ministry to children as Jesus did. He's correcting it, saying, listen, this isn't just about children, this is about us, and, and we need to make sure that we are presenting a gospel and we're sharing a gospel in such a way that is not building uh, these, these walls between us or between them and God, but we are, we are showing them the truth of the gospel and how they can come freely and boldly to Jesus and, and humbling themselves before him and receiving Christ as their savior. So we get back now to this normal setting again, and that would be the third point. The savior is ultimately blessing, and he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Now friends, this is a picture then, if, if we understand this rightly, Jesus is using this whole analogy as a picture of what it means to receive the kingdom and enter in. And so if that is true, this is also a picture of all of us who have embraced Christ as Savior. We are all, in a sense, sitting in his lap, being touched and blessed by him. And there's an Old Testament practice that, that is rooted in what Jesus is doing. Noah blessed his two sons, Shem and Japheth. Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau. Jacob blessed his sons and his grandsons. I remember when I was uh, out of college, I'd graduated from college, and I was getting ready to go to my first pastoral ministry. It was a youth pastorate in um, the area of Buffalo, New York, and I remember uh, being in, in my living room, my father and my mother there, and my dad, he, he put his hands on my head, and he began to pray a prayer of blessing. And he prayed for God's full work to be done in me, for, for blessings as a youth pastor, for fruit from the labor of that ministry, for safety and guidance and for God's will to be done, and so much more. And it was a tender, genuine, loving, God-dependent prayer. And it, sh it just revealed for me the heart of my father for me and what God had called me to do. It was a prayer of blessing. And I just kind of step back and just think about this. When we come to Jesus, he is blessing us. He is he's showering us with blessing upon blessing. We come dependent on him. He receives us, he touches us, he blesses us. 
I just turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter one that comes to mind, Ephesians chapter one. And I wanna see how the Apostle Paul um, explains this. In fact, you're, he kind of repeats it a number of times. Ephesians chapter one. Yeah, so verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. See, this is, this is what... This is what Christ does for us. We have come, we have received, we have come dependent on him and he turns around and we are blessed in him, by him. And that prayer of blessing, that that blessing is is a touch of spiritual healing which is what the gospel does. It is a spiritual promise. It accepts and welcomes us. And Jesus in receiving us as children gives us a new life eternal and abundant, a new standing, a friend, not an enemy, a new family. We are called sons. We're all called sons with full inheritance. Is it any wonder that that, that God's people are called the children of Israel? That we are called his children. You see, this this analogy, this picture, it's all throughout God's word. This beautiful picture of how we come to him. He welcomes his children into the kingdom of God. Let me finish now with just some concluding thoughts that are rooted in all of this. I'll put the main ideas up there for you to see. He welcomes us into his kingdom by touching us and blessing us. But he also continues in his ministry to us by touching us and blessing us. And and how does that take place? Let me give you a number of of responses to that question. Um, He does that blessing and touching through his word. When the word is is read, when it's taught, when it's preached, he is is ministering, he's touching us. And so this language of blessing, this language of touch is describing this this partaking of food, of of healing, of, of resources from God that is affecting our soul. It's not just kind of like this, this soupy emotional thing, well, he touched me type thing. No, this is, this is actually getting to the heart of the matter. This is getting into the place where he's doing heart surgery because of his word. Secondly, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, who's at work through his word. Third, this blessing, this touch comes through prayer. As we pray, and when people pray for us, we are benefited by all of that. It comes through the body of Christ exercising the gifts that are given to each individual and ministering those gifts brings a touch, brings a blessing to us all. Through creation, I don't know how many times you've, you've gone and stood at the ocean and you look out and you're like, God, you are incredible. You ever done that? I do, you know, when, every time I go, I'm just like, you know, just, just the, 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 those waves just do not stop coming. It just reminds me of how, how God just continually is, is pursuing and is, is, is with me, and it's just, just a helpful reminder. He does it through Christian ceremonies. Let me just kind of paint the picture here for you. There are weddings, and those weddings are a reminder of Christ's relationship with his bride, the church. 
And if you've probably sat at a wedding before, you're a husband and wife, and you're listening to the pastor speak and the couple that are up there, and you know the focus is on them, but a, a pastor who's doing the right thing is saying, hey, by the way, I just want you to know, yes, we're getting married here. Yes, that's good. you're getting married, but understand, this is an opportunity for the gospel to go out and to be proclaimed once again. Jesus, through that opportunity, is touching people, and he's reminding us what it means to be one flesh before Christ himself. And there's funerals. Funeral is another opportunity for the gospel to go forward. We, 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 we're reminded of God's careful handling of his children in death. But his children in death comes with a word, and it's the word hope. And so we, we preach the hope of the gospel in that death, certain of a reuniting with them when we enter into glory too. Again, what is God doing? He's encouraging, he's touching us, he's moving us, he's shaping us through those things. Then there's baptism, a reminder as we see it taking place of our death and our new life in Christ. It's another opportunity for God to be proclaiming his gospel to his body. And then of course what we're gonna participate with here in just a minute, the Lord's Supper where Jesus reminds us about the cost of the gospel. Jesus gave his body and he shed his blood for us and that is something that we are to remember. And it is something that should be a pause for us to consider where we are and to, to resolve some things in our hearts. So when someone says to another person, I was really touched by that sermon or that song or that testimony. They're saying, by that touch, I, I needed my Savior to pick me up and put me in his lap and encourage me and convict me and strengthen me and teach me through his word today. It's a child sitting dependent in the lap of Christ. You get the picture there. And Jesus, through that, is saying, I want to bless you. I want to encourage you. So friends, be thankful for God's blessing, <laughs> rightfully understood, rightfully applied. Lord, help us today. We have this just incredible picture. It's a simple, clear beautiful picture of the simplicity of the gospel where we as dependent children raise our hearts to you in belief and repentance and you receive us and you bless us. Lord, we don't deserve it. We don't deserve kind of love that you shower on us. We don't deserve you seeking us out and drawing us to yourself. And Lord, you certainly don't turn us away when we are coming like these children. And through you, we have new life. Through you, we have life that is abundant. Through you, we have so many blessings, as Ephesians says, in the, in the, the heavenly places. That means here, now, as we live our lives. Help us, Lord, to be refreshed this morning by the ways that you are encouraging and touching and blessing us in our Christian walk. And Lord, help us to consistently have this attitude of dependence. Even as we grow, even as we mature, even as we make progress in our spiritual walk, may we not think that we are 
independent of you, but Lord, we are consistently dependent more and more on you and that reality, Lord, settling in. Now, Lord, as we celebrate the Lord's table, may we truly reflect together with clarity and purpose what you have done for us. It was no small thing that you gave your body to be that sacrifice. It was no small thing that you shed your blood as payment for our sin. Lord, renew us and strengthen us once again as we participate today. In your name, amen.